It's just before midnight on Sunday the 18th of March, 1973. In the south of France, a strong wind blows through the streets, known locally as the Mistral, a fierce, cold northwesterly that is rumored to send folk mad. In his farmhouse in La Barbenne, a village between the towns of Aix-en-Provence and Salon-de-Provence, local farmer Francis Kerr is safely tucked up in bed, exhausted after a day's harvest. The farm dogs are kicking up an awful ruckus outside, possibly disturbed by the particularly fierce Mistral wind. Knowing he has to make sure there are no poachers on his land, Kerr slips out of his warm bed and goes out to see what all the fuss is about. The moon is full and high, bathing the farmyard in light. Perhaps the dogs are just howling at the moon after all. The wind whips around the courtyard as Kerr settles his dogs back in their kennels, hoping that he can finally get some peace. On his way back to the farmhouse though, he notices a single light over in the east. It's probably only a few hundred meters away, but far enough off his land to cause no further concern. He dismisses the light as a car stopped for some reason, and with the dogs now settled and quiet, he heads indoors again. Almost an hour later, 28-year-old Frédéric Delode's Citroën 2CV putters past the turn-off to the Clare farm, heading along the Route Nationale through the rolling lavender fields and uniform vineyards dotted with mimosa trees, now shrouded in darkness. Just past the farm, Delode notices an orange glow in the dark skyline ahead and recognizes it immediately. Fire. With this strong wind behind it, in these tinder dry fields, wildfires will spread quickly. He needs to help. As he rounds the bend in the road, he sees it, a fire raging in a clearing off a narrow lane up ahead. He slows as he approaches, and his headlights pick out a dark, shadowy figure heading towards him, arms waving. Stopping the car, he lowers his window, shouting, What's wrong? Have you had an accident? I've been attacked, comes the reply in French, spoken with an English accent. Staggering closer, the man is dressed in pale blue pyjamas, despite the cool of the night. Though tall and athletic, he's clearly in distress. I was knocked out. I've also been wounded, he says, his words partly snatched by the wind. Delode gets out of the car and rushes to open the passenger door, realizing this man needs help. The distressed tourist almost collapses into the passenger seat, clutching his stomach. Are you alone? Delode asks. No, but I don't know what's happened to my father, the man replies, glancing at the raging fire, consuming what looks to be a caravan less than 20 meters away. Delode is not the only motorist to stop and offer assistance, and while some head off to call the police and fire brigade, a group of three friends help to move the tourist's car out of the way of the burning caravan, thankful that the vehicles are not attached. The helpful passers-by also help to disconnect a gas canister and remove a fuel jerry can from harm's way, trying to contain the fire as best they can until help arrives. Delode leaves the three friends to wait for the emergency services, whose sirens can already be heard wailing as their approaching blue lights illuminate the night sky, and jumps back into his Citroen 
to hurry the Englishman to hospital, with questions about his missing father still hanging unanswered. While the fire crew extinguished what's left of the blaze, the police joined the trio of friends in a moonlight search of the area. What has happened to the older man? Did he run away during the attack? Or has he suffered an even worse fate than his son? Over here, quick, one of the lads yells, and the police rush to his side. Just a few meters from the burned out caravan, partly concealed in the bushes, lies the body of an older man. His thick sweater is soaked in blood, and his pajama bottoms are rolled down around his ankles, leaving him naked and exposed. In the torchlight, the police identify a deep wound at the base of his skull. There are also signs that an attempt has been made to slit the man's throat. Caked in his own drying blood, the man is clearly already dead, the victim of a cold-blooded murder. A search of the White's Hillman car at the scene produces two passports, which identify the tourists as Jeremy Cartland, now in the hospital in nearby Salon, and his father, John Basil Cartland, the murder victim. Warrant officer Yves Salandre, the attending gendarme, feels his stomach drop. This new case will bring scrutiny from across the channel, and the frustratingly thorough and dogged detectives of Scotland Yard. I'm John Hopkins, and welcome to Scotland Yard Confidential, the show where we delve into the files of London's legendary criminal investigation department. You'll be right there alongside investigators as they search for clues, interrogate suspects, and sort the truth from the lies. There will be twists and turns along the way. Sometimes the trail will run cold. Sometimes it will be a race against time. We'll rub shoulders with notorious gangsters, sit down with informants, and come face to face with cold-blooded murderers as we follow in the footsteps of some of the greatest detectives in history. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. From your morning podcast to your afternoon playlist, State Farm knows you personalize your entire day. And that's why State Farm helps you personalize your insurance with the State Farm Personal Price Plan. It offers coverage options that help protect what you care about most at an affordable price just for you. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices vary by state. Options selected by customer. Availability and eligibility may vary. We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. 
New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the deal. It go down. It go down in the deal. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. The murder of John Cartland is not the first to require collaboration between French and English police forces, and is also not unusual in highlighting the many ways in which the two sides differ in approach. Where Scotland Yard detectives favoured detailed note-taking, recorded interviews, and thorough detailing of any evidence captured and stored, their French counterparts, in 1973, seem altogether more casual in their investigation. In the months after finding the body, a number of inconsistencies in the recording of witness statements, evidence logs and interviews all mean that by the time Scotland Yard comes on board, the case is full of holes and the detectives will have their work cut out to pin down the killer. On the 20th of March, Commissaire Gregoire Krikorian of the Judicial Police is appointed as the lead detective in the case. While he holds a senior position in the force, Krikorian doesn't have much experience in murder investigations and picks up the reins already slightly hampered by the fact that it was the local gendarmerie who conducted the initial search of the crime scene and located the body. This search was made in darkness, with a number of vital pieces of evidence moved, and the body was unfortunately taken to the mortuary in Pélessin before a full assessment of the crime scene was completed. The initial report made by local police is sketchy at best. So too is the first interview with the only eyewitness, John Cartland's son, Jeremy. Jeremy claims that he and his father were already asleep in the caravan, having decided not to travel any further that night when he heard noises outside. He says he woke his father to tell him and went outside to investigate, finding a stranger leaning into the passenger side of their Hillman car. Jeremy says he confronted the robber, but was instantly struck around the back of the head. When he came to, a little while later, the caravan was on fire and his father was nowhere to be seen. This is the account that Jeremy gives to the doctors who treat him in the emergency room of the hospital on the night of the murder, and also to the local police who interview him in the early hours of the following morning. The emergency room doctor, however, finds no evidence of a blow to the head, nor of any concussion, which you would expect from a patient who claimed to have been knocked unconscious. Even the two stab wounds to Jeremy's torso are disregarded as being relatively superficial, both easily closed with two sutures apiece. Not only are his injuries not consistent with the story he tells, neither are the timings he describes. If the local farmer's evidence is to be believed, he saw a single light from the caravan at midnight, whereas Jeremy claims to have extinguished the lamp at 10pm, after which he and his father went to sleep. He says that he woke his father to say he had heard voices, and yet John Cartland was found in bushes near to the caravan, with his pyjama trousers around his ankles, suggesting he was about to relieve himself when he was attacked. Who would do that, knowing that their son had just gone outside 
to confront potential burglars. The many inconsistencies between Jeremy's story and the one presented by the evidence mean that Commissaire Krikorian fancies the son as his prime suspect, but he is struggling to find any concrete proof to support his suspicions. These doubts and discrepancies, thanks largely to the way in which witness statements are recorded in France, have dogged the case from the outset and come into even sharper relief when Scotland Yard are brought into the investigation. On the 26th of April 1973, just over a month after John Cartland's body was found in scrubland on the side of a quiet track of the RN572, Detective Sergeant John Troon of Number One Squad Scotland Yard finds himself at the post-mortem of Mr. Cartland's body. The second to have been conducted on the remains, but the first back on the deceased's home soil. DS John Troon is already a well-respected detective at the yard and is aware of the case being dubbed the Mystery of Palisane, knowing that at some point it was bound to come his way. Section 9 of the Offences Against the Person Act 1861 states that if any of Her Majesty's subjects are murdered in a foreign country, the perpetrator can be charged, tried, and sentenced in England under English law. Hoping that the French police have done a good enough job of the investigation so far, the arrival of Mr. John Cartland's body heralds the beginning of the transfer of the investigation to Scotland Yard. The second autopsy has been requested by Jeremy Cartland's legal team, who continue to question French police's methods in handling this case. Knowing that the deceased son has already come under intense scrutiny for his part in the events on the night of his father's murder, D.S. Troon's senses are twitching. Is Jeremy trying to cast enough doubt on his accusers so that the case against him will be dismissed? It's nothing D.S. Troon hasn't seen before. In his illustrious career at Scotland Yard so far, John Troon has spent the majority of his time at C1 Murder Squad or Number One Squad, as it is formerly known. An instinctive detective, unflappable and thorough, he has already been at the helm of a number of high-profile cases. Also present at the post-mortem is Detective Chief Superintendent Ron Page an experienced investigator, honest and solid, always frowning and never without his trademark pipe. He is known for his attention to detail, and this, coupled with Troon's intuitive detective's eye, means that the Yard has some of the best men looking at a case which already has diplomatic relations strained. The doctors conducting the post-mortem largely agree with the initial findings of their French colleagues. According to their reports, the likely scenario is that Mr. John Basil Cartland was struck on the back of the head by a heavy, blunt object. This would likely have rendered him unconscious and he would have fallen to the floor. It appears his attacker then struck him several more times around the head, fracturing his skull. French police recorded finding a lump of concrete hidden inside a bloodied pillowcase at the scene and it is believed that this was the weapon with which the head injuries were inflicted. More importantly, both the French and English doctors agree that the victim was still alive when he received the gaping 15-centimeter slit to the front left of his throat, severing the carotid artery. 
The fatal wound is thought to have been caused by the cutting edge of an axe. One such axe, belonging to the victim, was also recovered from the murder scene. Eleven smaller injuries caused by the same axe, above and below the main wound on the neck, are evidence of a frenzied and sustained attack by a right-handed assailant. What is clear to the detectives on both sides of the channel is that whoever killed John Cartland was really determined to finish the job. This was no accidental assault after a robbery gone wrong. This was a sustained and deliberate attack. In D.S. Troon's experience, this kind of assault is usually born of a deep resentment for the victim. But who hated Cartland enough to do such a thing? From what D.S. Troon knows of the case already, both father and son were attacked on the same evening by the same assailants, but the older man's wounds bear no resemblance to his son's. John Cartland was brutally hacked to death, whereas Jeremy's wounds were little more than superficial cuts. If the attack had been the result of a thwarted burglary, or even a passing psychopath, why would they have meted out such brutality on the father and left the son relatively unscathed? Finally, while the majority of Mr. John Cartland's possessions were destroyed in the caravan fire, most of Jeremy's had been in the hillman, begging the question of some kind of forethought on the son's part. Did he somehow know he would no longer need or want his father's possessions? When the case inevitably falls to Scotland Yard to investigate, these questions raise their heads again, along with countless others. Between the 7th and the 11th of May, Commissaire Krikorian arrives in the UK, where DS Troon is assigned to help him carry out background inquiries into the Cartland family. Although he's hit nothing but dead ends and brick walls with the investigation in France, Krikorian is still convinced that Jeremy is the likely guilty party. The French detective's laid-back demeanor, slightly hunched shoulders, and distinctive black moustache give him the air of one of those lounge lizards from the movies. And while the British press herald Commissaire Krikorian as a young Maigret, D.S. Troon finds him to be out of his depth, though nice enough. Krikorian's position in the judicial police is as a result of his university qualifications, rather than any real homicide experience. Something which Troon, on the other hand, has in spades. Despite his naivety, Commissaire Krikorian does seem honest, and D.S. Troon believes him when he says there is more to the relationship between father and son than has been declared. Sure enough, after Krikorian returns to France, Troon and his team continue to dig into the family and discover a wealth of evidence giving both motive and intent for Jeremy Cartland to kill his father. Always slightly fractious, the relationship between father and son had soured when Jeremy refused to break off an adulterous affair with a married woman. It was a dalliance that infuriated his father, and the older man made this very clear to anyone who would listen. In fact, in June 1972, John Cartland went as far as to make a new will, excluding Jeremy and his sister, and leaving his estate instead to his housekeeper, Miss Gibson. 
The full transcripts and reports of these interviews remain locked in Scotland Yard's vaults and won't be made public until the 1st of January 2045. But summaries have been released. In her statement, Jeremy's lover, who remains unnamed, tells D.S. Troon that Jeremy often spoke to her about the money that would come to him when his father died. Jeremy already had a house in Brighton by way of a gift from his father and has partial shares in another property. Perhaps Jeremy assumed that, should his father die, he would gain a share in John Cartland's other properties, as well as realizing the value of stocks and shares that had been put in his name. In her account of the relationship, Jeremy's former lover claims that while the two men were superficially cordial, there was no love lost. Jeremy openly treated his father with contempt and referred to him as a joke and a knoll. She tells Troon of Jeremy's often irrational behavior, including threats to end his own life and violence towards her. She describes one nightmare of his in which he woke in his old school grounds with an ax in his hand, one of several nightmares he claims to have suffered. In other bad dreams, he found himself howling, damaged his bedding, and having to defend himself from attackers. He once even woke to find himself threatening a flatmate with a knife. Could Jeremy have killed his father during one of these sleepwalking nightmares? Other witnesses, too, corroborate her version of Jeremy and John's relationship. One friend tells of Jeremy's repeated threats to kill his father by pushing him over a cliff or driving a nail into his head or poisoning him. Though apparently his favorite and most returned to method was to kill him with an axe while chopping wood and claim it to be an accident afterwards. As well as the witness statements, Scotland Yard also collects 125 pages of letters and diaries written by Jeremy, which appear to show a mental decline and certainly display a resentment and animosity towards his father. Meanwhile, over on the continent, the French investigation is faltering in spite of the circumstantial evidence they and Scotland Yard have now dug up against Jeremy. Unable to secure an arrest, Commissaire Krikorian reluctantly concedes that Jeremy Cartland is free to go, albeit under a cloud of suspicion. Making the French detective's task more difficult is the fact that Jeremy's hotshot lawyers secured him parti civile status in the case before he left France meaning that he would now be taking a joint action with the police against an unknown person, referred to only as X, for the murder of his father and his own attempted murder. This strange quirk of French law does two things for Jeremy's cause. One, it means he can only be interviewed by the judge, not the police, and only in the presence of lawyers with questions submitted 24 hours before the interview, effectively sidelining French detectives. The other benefit is that by becoming a parti civile to the case, he becomes accuser, not accused, meaning he can reject any accusation of guilt for himself, but still vow to help bring the true culprits to justice. 
With his hands tied, Commissaire Krikorian tries to get Jeremy to return to France on the 17th of May for a reconstruction of the evening of the murder, with a view to charging him for arson and then letting the trial for murder unfold alongside. Possibly sensing that if he attends, he will likely be detained, Jeremy wisely stays away. If arrested there, he would almost certainly face trial, and if convicted, he would be sent to the guillotine. It isn't until 1981 that capital punishment is abolished in France. With the reconstruction concluded without their key witness, a warrant for Jeremy's arrest is indeed made. However, the British authorities don't see that enough evidence has been provided to justify an extradition. Instead, the decision is made at government level to hand the case over to the British. The dossier of files is passed to the Director of Public Prosecutions, who directs DS Troon, Ron Page, and a handful of other officers to head to France to conduct their own investigations. Despite already knowing of some of the differences in investigation methods, DS Troon is surprised by just how many errors have been made in the handling of the case. Not only was the initial search of the crime scene carried out in darkness and the body and other evidence moved, but certain key pieces of evidence were not logged properly or, in some cases, even entered into the record. The crime scene was never sealed off either, allowing it to become a circus of sightseers and trophy hunters. Finally, witness statements in France are recorded as a general summary of a conversation rather than a verbatim transcript of questions and answers as they are in the UK, meaning that answers and statements can either seem vague or strangely defensive. The file is a mess, even for a seasoned detective like DS Troon. Despite the focus of the investigation being on Jeremy Cartland, a number of other possible theories abound. The press at home and on the continent have done their homework on the victim. And it turns out that John Basil Cartland is far more than a simple English teacher with a passion for all things French. He was an extremely brilliant man, a great humanist. Fellow headmaster Jacques Montrenaud writes in Le Monde. By all accounts, an eccentric. Those who knew him found him to be friendly, if unconventional. Born in 1912, he was a public schoolboy who went on to study history and economics at Oxford. In a varied career, he taught for a year at Cranley Public School before taking a role at a university in Burma. He saw military action in the Second World War in North Africa with the British-led Sudan Defence Force on the Abyssinian border and also in Cairo, joining the Intelligence Corps under General Wavell, where he rose to the rank of second lieutenant. It is highly likely, given his passion for French, that he would have worked with that same intelligence corps behind enemy lines in France throughout World War II. Could he have fought alongside resistance fighters combating the Nazi occupation? Could enemies made during his war years have finally caught up with him during his trip to France? This theory grew some legs when an anonymous letter arrived at the BBC's Paris office alleging that John Cartland's murder was not only a revenge act for his wartime activities, 
but part of a wider plot involving Soviet and British intelligence, the Mafia, the French underworld, and the Gestapo. The anonymous author, however, was quickly identified as Enrico Polideskis, an Istanbul-born man who frequently made similar claims and was already known to authorities as an espionage crank. Like many parts of this story, the truth will never be known. Not all of John Cartland's claims can be verified, but when World War II was over and he returned home, he had tales to tell. From capturing the port of Cherbourg in the Normandy landings to battling Mussolini in Libya, the self-styled Major Cartland delighted in regaling people with his military exploits. In the 1950s, Cartland acquired a new fortune, thanks to an alliance with Mohammed al-Sanusi, the future King Idris I of Libya, who, having become a friend in battle, once apparently gave his English comrade a suitcase stuffed with US dollars. Of course, this could equally have been another of John's tall tales. However, Cartland came upon his wealth, and whatever connections, good or bad, he made throughout his life, the truth remains that John Basil Cartland died with his pyjamas around his ankles in an isolated lay-by in the south of France, and police are none the wiser as to who killed him. There is still, of course, the possibility that the attack was a random act of violence. What about prowlers looking for a quick looting opportunity? Was this another pair of British tourists randomly targeted by the same group? Each theory is carefully examined by D.S. Troon and his team, but ultimately none make as much sense as the case for parricide or the murder of a parent. Time and again, this is the verdict returned to by both press and police. Jeremy remains the prime suspect. After six weeks of dogged investigation in France, D.S. Troon, D.C.S. Page and the team return to Scotland Yard with firm suspicions but no solid evidence to proceed with. On the 21st of December, 1973, nine months after his father was murdered, Jeremy is interviewed by Ron Page of Scotland Yard's murder squad. The interview is conducted in front of Jeremy's solicitor and recorded by John Troon. As a parti civile, Jeremy has copies of all the reports and statements from the French investigation and he perhaps used these to refresh his memory of his account, since pretty much all of his answers match those given at the time. This in itself is unusual, as even true accounts change over time. The only significant difference in his testimony is that he now claims he had no financial expectations from his father's death. With the will having been read in the intervening months, Jeremy now knows there would be no reward for him there, and he goes as far as to say he assumed his father would live another 20 years or so. He also denies ever discussing his potential inheritance with anyone, nor fantasizing about the ways he might kill the older man. Not bound by the restrictions of the French Parti Civile, DCS Page and DS Troon are not obliged to show Jeremy any of the statements they have gathered in England from his friends and family. Ultimately, the interview ends with no further discoveries and Jeremy signs the statement Troon has recorded as being true. 
like their French counterparts. Scotland Yard are left with suspicions, but no evidence for conviction. A conference is held at the chambers of senior Treasury Counsel John Matthew QC, where the inconsistencies, doubts, and contradictions of the case are all reviewed. Pathologist Professor Keith Simpson even states that he is convinced Jeremy's wounds were self-inflicted. Despite the shared belief in the son's guilt, the evidence against him is largely circumstantial and cannot be argued beyond reasonable doubt. As a result, the Director of Public Prosecutions is forced to conclude that there is not enough evidence to prosecute. The news comes as a relief to Jeremy, though he would have preferred the verdict to be no evidence on which he could be prosecuted. Still, the upshot is that the case against Jeremy Cartland is dropped. Officially, the murder of John Cartland remains unsolved to this day. Even with the benefit of hindsight and reflection, there are still only three major possibilities for a perpetrator. One is political assassins seeking revenge for Mr. Cartland's wartime activities, who somehow knew that he would be in France passing Pélissin on that fateful day. Another possibility is opportunistic thieves who somehow spotted, targeted and followed the caravan to the remote location, killing John but only lightly wounding Jeremy. The final theory is that Jeremy Cartland planned to kill his father all along and did so in a vicious attack, carefully destroying any credible evidence of his deed afterwards. There is almost no evidence to support the first two theories and only circumstantial evidence to support the third. Loss of inheritance, an argument between father and son over an unsuitable lover, and a tense and fractious relationship are among the possible motives which Scotland Yard uncover. But try as they might, they couldn't piece together enough evidence to make the conviction stick. Jeremy, for his part, never recovers from the ordeal. To this day, his role, if any, in the murder of his father remains a mystery. He not only maintained, but staunchly defended his innocence until his sudden death in June 2014. He wrote and published his own account of events in a book entitled The Cartland File, which tore viciously into the French police, their methods and investigation, but did little to shed any new light on the awful events of the night of 18th of March 1973. He also claims, in the same book, that he was never asked outright in his interview with Page and Troon, did you kill your father? This, according to D.S. Troon's detailed note-taking, appears to be false. It is recorded that he was asked, is it possible that on the night of 18th of March this year, you had a nightmare or sleepwalked during which time you killed your father? To which Jeremy replied, no. It's not the only falsehood in the account, but one which leads D.S. Troon to say, he was a conceited and vain character, full of his overinflated self-importance, a liar, but not very good at it, and I have no doubt of his guilt in relation to his father's murder. Troon goes on to blame the differences in investigation and evidence gathering between Britain and France for the fact that neither country were able to bring the killer to justice. In Jeremy's obituary in the Times, it states that 
Wherever he appeared, he seemed to become involved in a fascinating or outrageous situation from which only his extreme ingenuity could extricate him. And this seems to be true, too, of this case. The murder of John Basil Cartland will arguably never be solved. As time goes on, witnesses die and memories fade. It is hugely unlikely that any further insights will appear. Even for the most famous detective team in the world, there are some cases which just don't end in conviction, and this is one of them. Too many conflicting arguments, too many unsolved riddles, perhaps the fact that they came to this case second-hand with the damage already done. Whatever the reason, the truth remains elusive, and the fire was now gathering dust on the unsolved shelf. Ultimately, the only undeniable truth is the one which ends Jeremy's own account. The unalterable facts are that my father is dead and that whoever did it is free. Next week on Scotland Yard Confidential, we travel back to the swinging 60s. In Bromley, Kent, a young bride is slaughtered after inviting an unexpected guest in for a cup of coffee. But with no murder weapon and no fingerprints, police are struggling to find the culprit until they see a familiar name on a Christmas card written to the victim. The name of a man who thinks he's clever enough to have gotten away with murder, and it looks as though he might. We join Margaret Pereira, the first woman on the scientific staff of the Metropolitan Forensic Science Lab, as she pieces together the evidence against him, fiber by fiber. Scotland Yard Confidential is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boiro for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Series consultant, Roger Morris. Written by Sean Coleman. Hosted by me, John Hopkins. Supervising editor, Kevin Pham. Sound designed by Matthias Torres-Sole. Sound supervisor, Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mixmaster by Kian Ryan Morgan. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley. 